Hello, friends, and thanks for tuning in to Rod Tucker Says. I uh, had posted on Facebook that I was going to do a Bible study on John 4, and I decided um, I needed to do it, one, because I said I was going to do it, but I'm only going to do John 4, 1 through 26, because there's so much there, and I don't want to take four hours of your time, so maybe we'll hit the other half of it at another time, but I'm excited to kind of go through this. Um, my tone might be a little, uh, how do I say, softer. Um, this isn't a sermon. I post a lot of the sermons that I preach on this podcast, but this is just some thoughts, and I'm going to be reading through some of John 4 and then sharing thoughts with you. So with that said, a couple things. Number one, you don't have to agree with me, and Number two, I hope that you can see things coming out of the Word of God as I go through this. Because my point in doing this, or my purpose in doing this, is not that I share something with you that transforms you, although I would love to do that. My point is that, in purpose, is that the Word of God reads us. Not that we read it, um, but that we try our best to allow it to read us. And so as we do that, hopefully some epiphany will come. And even even in the just the normal day-to-day that we're in right now, we can experience a season of epiphany. And so I'm going to begin in John 4, and then I'm just going to stop and talk as we go, starting in verse 1. If you have a Bible and you want to pause and, and grab it and read along with me, go ahead. Otherwise, uh, feel free to listen, take notes, or whatever. But here we go. I'm excited. This is Jesus talking with a Samaritan woman in John 4. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. And it begins by saying, The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. I think this uh, passage starts off (laughs) really funny to me because there's already a new miracle comparison um, as if the kingdom of God is is about numbers in the Pharisees' minds. And we still run into this on a daily basis in church culture. The Pharisees learned that Jesus was baptizing more But even on a deeper look, Jesus is not. He's equipping other people to baptize. This is not a personality-driven ministry. And uh, when he heard this, he decided to leave Judea and went back once more to Galilee, which um, something about that caused him to turn around and say, I'm going to go back this this way. Um, Verse 4, Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, as tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. I've heard people say this was in the middle of the the day, the heat of the day. Um, And I love verse 4 that says, Now he had to go through Samaria. Because when I read that verse, I think, Maybe there was another way to go. Maybe there wasn't another way to go. But I think in Jesus' mind, 
in, in the discerning spirit that he carried, walking very gently with the Holy Spirit, that dove that rested upon him, walking carefully in obedience with the Spirit, he had to go through Samaria. It wasn't just like, this is how I have to go. He had to go through Samaria. And he finds himself at Jacob's well, one of the historic wells where Jews would say, um, God, are the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jacob had dug this well, and people would come to drink from it. I believe this well was in between Jericho and Jerusalem. A lot of uh, priests and Levites would travel this road. Um, There were Samaritans on this road. Jews and Samaritans hated each other, and um, there was just a constant fight. I'll get into that in a little bit, but this is the same road when Jesus tells the parable of a good Samaritan. I believe that he references this road, and so he's tired, and it was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So so the well is outside of town, and you know, I've heard a lot of people teach on the reality that this woman has come alone during a time of day where uh, she's safe to draw water because she may have been killed, where she's safe to not be shamed um, because she, in some sense, has a scarlet letter on her and people just do not accept her. And so she she's come to draw water. Uh, I'll remind you that water, we're not in Michigan or California. We're in, we're in the Middle East. We're in a place where water is definitely life. And she gets to draw it probably once a day and make that trek. And she's responsible for herself. And so this is a really big deal for her and probably a dangerous trek to draw water um, in reading that she has come alone to draw water and not during the morning or the evening when it's cooler to get water. And so she comes to get water and Jesus says, will you give me a drink? And in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So she not only points out that she's a woman, but she says, Jews don't even associate with Samaritans. And I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus, I love this because she's dealing with some oppression in her question. She's dealing with the idea that Jews Jews don't associate with Samaritans. If we go back to how Samaritans came about when, when Jews were taken over by the Babylonians. Some of them um, had sex with uh, the pagans, and then Samaritans popped out. So Samaritans were considered half-breeds by the Jews, and because they were considered half-breeds, they, they were just not good enough. So the Jews even worshipped in a different location, and the Samaritans worshipped on a different mountain. Samaritans had their own version of the Torah, I've heard this taught on. And um, they hated each other. And so she's like, I'm a Samaritan and I'm a woman. So women during this time were considered less than. And if you were married, you know, you were considered property, which is where we get the idea of a woman taking the last name of a man. If you're unaware, excuse me, I have to cough. (coughs) So when a woman takes the last name of a man, 
there, there she, she becomes his property. And so Jesus addresses this oppression, but he does it in a very abstract way because he wants to not only engage her mind and give her answers, he wants to go straight for her heart. So uh, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he he spiritualizes it here, but but she doesn't fully catch on. And he's talking about if you knew who you were speaking with, you would have asked, you would have asked him and he would giving you living water. And she says, Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and flocks and herds? So she's pointing out he has nothing to even draw water with, and Jesus continues to gently and humbly explain to her in this one-on-one -on -one setting in the heat of the day where no one else is there. She said, you have nothing to draw water with. And Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And I love this this answer, but I, I love the, the response even more when the woman says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to this well. Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to this well. <coughs> Sorry, I have a little bit of cough. This woman is hearing Jesus say, I can give you water and you'll never be thirsty again. And her response is, please give me some of this magical water. Please give me some of this magical water that I can drink so that I won't be thirsty again. This is where I kind of pause and I ask you a, a kind of rhetorical question because you obviously can't answer me <laughs> over podcast. If someone were to come to you or so, anyone and say, I have magical water that if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again. How would you respond? You would either laugh or you would say, that's absurd. But this woman doesn't say that. She says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So with that, I want to point out this reality that she is desperate. Like she wants some type of magical water that is going to make her not have to come back to this well because there's a really good chance that she is risking her life to come and get this water. To, to, to come and get the thing that's going to sustain her life, she has to risk her life. And so she wants out of this lifestyle. She, she's done with it, even, even to the promise of like, if you have magical water, please give it to me. Very few of us would believe that, but she, because of her desperation, in, in her misinterpretation, believes. And I think Jesus is walking with her. I think he's meeting her where, he, where she's at, and he's saying, I have something more for you. And right now she thinks it's magical water, 
And so Jesus goes even deeper and he says, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And then Jesus said, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now I want to pause right here and I want to point out a couple things. I've heard this sermon preached on multiple times before where the premise or the point of it is Jesus is gently calling out this woman's sin so that he can forgive her because she is an adulteress. But I want to pull you back into the narrative and I want to let you to see the story from where it is. Remember a few moments ago I said women were considered property. So during this time, women couldn't divorce and women couldn't marry. They were property, taking the last name of their husbands. And so Jesus isn't telling her, you're an adulteress and I'm calling out your sin. What he's doing is he's saying, I see you and I know you. I see that you have been taken as property on five different occasions and you've been abandoned and rejected on five different occasions. Now, there's probably a good chance that she did not cheat on her husband because if she had cheated on her, one of her husbands, she probably would have been stoned to death or killed. Remember, Mary gets pregnant and Joseph has the opportunity to even, even have her killed. And that's just the way it was. So there's a really good chance that she didn't do anything really wrong in these marriages, but that she was just rejected and abandoned. And the husband, or the man, not, the, not even the husband, the man that she's with now, who's not your husband, won't even take her as his own. So there's this significant abandonment and rejection, and it comes in three different layers. One, she, she acknowledges that she's a Samaritan, and there's that rejection from the Jews. And then there's the acknowledgement that she's a woman, and there's that, that rejection in the culture. And then she acknowledges that in her own interpersonal life, she's been taken as property five, on five different occasions, and now six different occasions, and rejected five times. And the man that she's with now won't even take her as his own. And so we, we shift our lens, we shift our view, and we see Jesus loving her through this statement. And so her response now makes sense because she doesn't fall to her knees in repentance. She says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. And she wants to go deeper with him. Now, this is really, really cool what happens here because her response is, I can see that you are a prophet. And then the next thing she says is, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And so she's been given, if you pay close attention, Jesus has empathized with her and he's come and he's seen her and he's prophesied over her life and he's seen things that she didn't share with him. And he has told her, I see you as a Samaritan who's oppressed by the Jews, as a woman who's oppressed by men, and as a wife who's been abandoned and neglected by many men. And so that, that moment for her of being noticed and seen and loved and asked for a drink, all of this is 
coming out of the beginning statement where Jesus says, will you give me a drink? Now she is accepted and, and she is loved and she belongs and she's worthy to serve Jesus a drink. Now, this is unique because her response is about where her fathers worshipped. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. I would love to point out that when a person who is significantly oppressed in their life, a minority who is oppressed, gets a ray of light or a ray of hope because of anything, specifically in this one, because of what Jesus has to offer her, these people typically, and if you, you can read about them historically, turn and fight like their life depends on it for other oppressed people around them, even if those people aren't oppressed as them. Let me say that again. When someone who is oppressed experiences the hope that is offered them from God, they usually turn and begin to fight like their life depends on it for the lives of others who are also in oppression, even if the oppression of the others is lighter than their oppression. So she's even fighting for the men with this question. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And she knows that Samaritans wouldn't even be allowed to worship, at least the vast majority. And then it shifts. Jesus stops just talking. The verse changes. And it's not Jesus said this in response to her. It says Jesus declared in verse 21. He starts preaching a sermon. Jesus declares, and it's a sermon to one. The Pharisees in the very beginning are troubled because Jesus is baptizing more people, which he's actually not. His disciples are. But now he's taking the pulpit and he's preaching to one because Jesus is going after the one, not building a ministry, not building this huge thing for himself. He's going after the one. And he had to go through Samaria because he knew this one would be there. And he says, he declares, love that word, declares, Jesus declares, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus preaches this sermon to her, and it's a bit confusing to her when she first hears it, but he says, first of all, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And then if you skip over to verse 23, he says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So a shift happens right there where Jesus offers hope with his language. A time is coming when the way you worship will change. So the Jews hold this better place of worship 
in Jerusalem. The Samaritans have a somewhat less better place on this mountain because they're not as good. And she probably wouldn't have even been allowed to worship on that mountain, maybe in some limited, limited, limited fashion, but she wouldn't have been able to worship to the fullest. And Jesus, Jesus points out that you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. He's He's referencing what something she would already know. Jews are better. The Jews are better than us Samaritans. We all know that. We're not good enough. And I'm even a little worse than that. Excuse me, I have to cough one more time. <coughs> Sorry about those coughs. So Jesus points out what she already knows. And then he says, uh, you know, it's not going to be on this mountain. It's not going to be a Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. A time is coming and has come now when the worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Now, I've heard a lot of preachers and a lot of people just pull that verse out without going through the story. Just, we need to worship in spirit and in truth. And they say, oh, it means we need to worship with the Holy Spirit and we need to worship the the true thing, the true God. The Holy Spirit hasn't entered the picture other than the baptism of Jesus. And so this woman isn't isn't going to understand this idea of Holy Spirit per se when Jesus just speaks it to her. So there's a really good chance that he's talking about something that she would know, something called the pneuma, the breath of God, that God breathed the life into Adam. And, and, and so there's a, there's a high probability that Jesus is saying the time is coming when true worshipers will worship with their lives, will worship with the life that God has given them, the life that God has put into them. And then he addresses the idea of it's no longer going to be in Jerusalem. It's no longer going to be on this mountain. I, if you if you are a churchgoer, you might recall the story of Abraham and Isaac, and they go up on the mountain, and Abraham's going to sacrifice his son to God, and, and the whole thing gets flipped upside down. It's an amazing story, but before they go up to do the sacrifice, Abraham turns to his servants and he says, wait here, my son and I are going to go worship, and then we will return. And so not only has the has 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 the the space changed where you do it it's no longer going to be at the temple it's no longer going to be on the mountain and Jesus says a time is coming and has now come so the shift is now with this woman that that you are going to worship with your life he's also saying and in truth meaning you don't not only have to go to that place, the sacrifice piece is going to be done. The sacrifice piece is going to be finished. And Jesus, eventually we watch him take us through this, this place where he's the final sacrifice, where he's saying no more violence now, no more killing in the name of God's. There, that's not going to be required anymore because you're going to be able to worship in spirit and in truth. And in a little while, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Right? I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. That's what he, 
that's what he says to uh, Nicodemus in the previous chapter. And now he's doing the same thing with this woman. He's saying, you're going to worship the truth. You're going to worship that being. And you're going to do it with the life that God has breathed into you. It's not about going here or there or being good enough or not being good enough. You're going to be free to worship God in this new way. The game is changing now. A time is coming and yet has come now. So then the woman replies, well, well first Jesus backs, he even supports himself by saying God is spirit. And in that, he's, he, he, he's pointing out the reality that God doesn't just need to exist in one space, being carried around in a tabernacle or a temple. He's not on a mountain or in a temple. He is spirit, and so his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth as well. I hope you're following along with that piece. His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth as well. So then the woman replies, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, there's that word again, declared, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. And she is, she is, she is encountering the Christ. And now he's said it clearly to her. You are going to worship me. You're going to worship in, in the life that God has put in you. And you're going to worship in the truth of who I am. And I love it. I love what he's doing there. I love that, that the point of worship was to take a woman who was so oppressed and so at so many different levels and bring freedom to her so that she could, she could understand that the tabernacle has now come to her. That she doesn't have to go there anymore, but it's now come to her, this lonely woman at this well. It's presented itself before her. Now, I encourage you to keep reading because the woman walks back into her town and, oh my gosh, it says in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. This woman, the, one of the most oppressed women in this whole town, and not only in this town, but also she's a Samaritan and also she's a woman, like tr triple oppressed, goes back into her town and people are now receiving the freedom. She takes the tabernacle back in to them. And now the idea of going somewhere to worship and doing something specific to worship have been deleted. Where now worship comes with, through the life that God has put in us and through the truth of who he is. I, who speak to you, am he. Friends, that would be an incredibly freeing story, an, an incredibly freeing encounter for a woman who had went through everything that this woman had went through. And the fact that she receives this spark of hope from Jesus and then realizes who he really is 
and then turns around and starts to fight for all of the oppressed around her is truly, truly at the very heart of who Jesus is, of what the gospel of Jesus is, and of who you and I were created to be. And so there's not, there's not a big point. There's not, there's not a big go and do. There's a go and recognize that the temple has been brought to you in the same way it's been brought to this woman. And we, like this woman, have the opportunity to take this spirit and truth to others and communicate through our lives through our joy and through our words that there's nothing else to do and there's nothing else to be. The, the life that God has breathed into us is worthy of worshiping Him. And the truth is, He's made it possible. And no matter who the person is, Jesus is saying, will you give me a drink? It all starts with that statement. Hey, lady, who by no means, according to any standard of religious law or culture, should have any business even being in the same space as me, will you give me a drink? That, my friends, is grace. And that is amazing. And that is a Bible study on the beginning of John chapter 4. Thanks for listening. Go in peace.